Welcome to Grain Talk, a podcast by Grain Farmers of Ontario. I'm Megan Wright. The Grain Talk podcast can be found on Apple iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platform. In this episode of Grain Talk, we will speak with Dr. Elizabeth Skidmore, a registered psychologist who lives on a grain farm in Essex County, about farmer mental health. We will also get an update from Marcus Hurl, the chair of Grain Farmers of Ontario. But first, a Grain Talk news update. The Best of Cama Awards were held last week in London, Ontario. Agri-marketers from across Canada joined together to celebrate the best marketing and communications projects from the past year. Grain Farmers of Ontario was a finalist in several categories, and we are happy to announce we received two awards along with a Certificate of Merit. We received a Certificate of Merit for our Crop Up restaurants and won the same category for our Grade 3 Teacher's Kit. Grain Farmers of Ontario was also a winner in the Crisis Communications category for our communications around Dawn and Corn. Field to Market, the Alliance for Sustainable Agriculture, has announced its expansion into Canada. The launch of Field to Market Canada offers the food and agricultural value chain a unified program to advance sustainability in North American commodity crop production. Through this expansion, stakeholders across the United States and Canada have access to a streamlined approach to conduct continuous improvement projects in both countries, strengthening the ability for companies to meet their sustainable sourcing objectives and science-based targets. Grain Farmers of Ontario is proud to be a key supporting organization along with CropLife Canada, Fertilizer Canada, and Pulse Canada. Learn more at fieldtomarket.org Canada. Grain Farmers of Ontario would like to remind members about our farmer wellness initiatives. Farming can be stressful. Unpredictable weather, as we see with this year's harvest, changing regulations, and the state of the markets are a few of the many stressors you may be facing. Self-care is one strategy for getting through difficult times. Self-care will be different for each individual, so you need to understand what will work best for you. Make a list of things you enjoy doing and things you know to reduce stress. Practice these tools, not just when things are difficult, but when you are feeling well too. When you practice self-care regularly, it will be easier to practice self-care when things get difficult. For more farmer wellness resources, visit gfo.ca slash farmer wellness. And now, here's my conversation with Elizabeth Skidmore. Hi Elizabeth, thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be with you. All right, so why don't we get started with a little bit about you. Uh, so what you do and what do you do and what is your connection to agriculture? Well, I am a registered psychologist. I have an office in Leamington, Ontario, and I've been practicing in the area of psychology for about um, 30 years. Don't want to date myself, but... <laughs> um, and uh, let's see, my connection to the agricultural community is that I am married to a farmer. We just had our 23rd anniversary. And uh, what's interesting about that is I'm basically a suburban girl. I came from the States, and I have always lived around a big city. My father always worked in a big city like New York City or Los Angeles, Detroit. And uh, now I'm living in a little hamlet in Ontario. And 
it's been a wonderful experience for me. I greatly needed the peace and quiet of the farmland, and I really, really like the changes that have come in my life since I've come here. Oh, that's awesome. And congratulations on 23 years with your husband. Yes, thank you. (laughs) No small feat anymore in these days, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. All right, so how did you begin your career in psychology? What made you interested in it? Um, Where did you study? Well, this is a funny story because um, years ago, I, I actually graduated from high school early and went off to university, but I quickly realized that I didn't know what I wanted to do. So much to my father's chagrin, I dropped out of school and I became a secretary and worked my way up into being an office manager and eventually was working for a group of psychologists and a psychiatrist. And this was the most interesting job I ever had, not because I really liked my work typing and all of that, but I was fascinated by the people that came through the office. And in those days, um, I'd have to say that one of my main jobs was to make coffee. (laughs) So when the the patients would come in, I would grab a cup of coffee for them and for my boss. And this is what I observed. They would walk down the hall, disappear into his office, and an hour later, they would come out laughing and smiling. And the people would pay him a lot of money before they left. (laughs) And I said to myself, I think I could do that. Oh, interesting. (laughs) So um, I also, I was so interested in all of the resources that the doctors recommended to their patients. So I read all of the books and articles, and I just became more and more interested in psychology. And eventually, one of my mentors suggested that I go to school. So I did, and I loved psychology, and I ended up um, in school for 10 years. By that time, I went back at 28 and spent 10 years in school to obtain a bachelor's degree and eventually a PhD uh, so that I could do counseling, which is what I've been doing and which I love. Wow, what a journey. What an what an interesting start to a career. Just You thought you were just getting a simple office job to get you through for a while, and it turned into your full-time career. Yes, I know, and it, it, it's just a funny story too, isn't it, that I, it just looked like fun to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you mentioned you're from the States, originally from Michigan, I believe. So how did you go from Michigan to uh, living in Essex County, Ontario? Well, that's an interesting story as well. Um, I ended up at a single stance with a friend of mine, and lo and behold, my husband-to-be ended up at that same single stance with a friend of his, and uh, he being very shy, I'm the one who introduced myself to him. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) And then I found out, um, you know, when I said, what is it that you do? And he told me he was a farmer. I really had never known anyone who had farmed before. So I was quite interested in that, and uh, but it wasn't that that really um, got my attention. I think it was the fact that we danced. <laughs> it was so romantic. <laughs> so he finagled my phone number out of me, and somehow, I don't know how, because I told myself when I went to this dance I wasn't going to be um, getting uh, to know anybody, and um, he called me, and the rest is history. I came over and uh, visited the Windsor area and just loved what I saw and, and loved who he was. I think the fabric of who he was uh, was really important. I had, Like I said, I'd never had farming people in my life before, and he was so grounded, and uh, his, uh, his faith was so simple. You know, you can't farm without believing in a creator and without trusting in, uh, in goodness, right? You can't just put seeds in the ground and expect them to grow. 
there's a lot of uh, trust and faith involved in that. And I really liked those things that I saw in him. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, it ha- always happens when you least expect it, I guess. Yes, <laughs> yes. So then once you moved to Windsor, what was it like adjusting to farm life since you lived in cities your whole life and then you moved to a little farm? Well, that was a huge change for me uh, because he, we live about a half hour outside of Windsor. And Windsor wouldn't have been that much of a change for me, but living out in the county was a big change for me. Uh, I lived in a tiny little hamlet, not a lot of people. When I first moved here, I was very concerned that everyone would be in my business. Uh, that's just what I envisioned of a small town where everyone would just be, you know, nosy. And uh, I didn't find that to be the case at all. And I did work in Windsor. So when I came here, I did get work as a psychologist. And so, you know, every day I was going to Windsor. So I still had that sense of more of a, a city, even though Windsor is a small city. But one of the things that I really remember when I moved out to the county was how dark it was at night. And there, aren't a lot, there weren't a lot of houses around us at that time. And I used to kind of be frightened at night. It was weird. I'd look out and I'd think, wow, I'm kind of out here all by myself. And if he wasn't here for any reason, I'd kind of get a little freaked out. But, you know, the sad thing is there's been so much building over the years that now there are lots of lights around me, lots of houses. And in addition, lots of hasn't been a real welcome um, thing to the area, but has made it seem like there's a lot more going on. So from a psychologist's perspective, what did you learn about the life of a farmer and the challenges they face? Oh, yes. Well, I was very surprised um, how much there was to farming. I was so naive. I had no idea. So I really thought it was just all about seeds going into the ground. I had no idea how the seeds went in. And I was very um, surprised by how much equipment there is and um, the cost of the equipment. That was just a big wake-up call for me that farmers not only had to own the land, which we've seen just skyrocket in cost, um, but this big equipment so that the farming would go faster. Uh, That was something also that I was um, surprised about and stressed out about was farming couldn't take place unless all the conditions were just right. So there was a very small window of opportunity for getting the crops in. You know, the ground had to be dry enough, and, um, you know, the weather had to be right. My husband worked off the farm, had a full-time position off-farm, so he would have to take time off to farm, or he would have to farm after working hours. Mm -hmm. So it was so intense, uh, working around the clock. He always seemed to be tired and exhausted, um, you know, very, very frustrated with the weather. And then when things would start to go well, there'd be a breakdown. So, yeah, of course. <laughs> and, you know, me being from, being from the city, it was more like, well, why don't we just get new equipment? <laughs> but again, that's where I had no idea, you know, the cost of things. Um, the to, to get things repaired was costly. To send it off the farm was very costly. Fortunately, my husband was very, um, he'd been a mechanic, so he could repair all his own equipment but it would seem like we would just get started into a routine or a role and then something would break down so one of the things that was you know and this was my own perspective coming in as an outsider I would think well why don't um, people work together you know why does everybody have to have this big expensive equipment but then I quickly understood that the window of opportunity for farming was so small 
that if everyone co-op farmed together, not everyone's fields would get done, right? And so that was, that became something that I hadn't understood that became so critical as well, to understand that each farming operation had to have basically all their own equipment, do their work themselves, um, and all within this little tiny time frame, which was insane. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of lessons learned. I'm sure a lot of farmers listening can probably relate to that. You just get going and something breaks and then you fix it and then it'll start to rain or something. Yes, um, yes. It's, it's never so, easy. Or, or snow like recently, right? Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> Throw that into the mix too. So with all these lessons learned and, and seeing all the hard work and stresses that go into farming, did you start to help out on the farm? Did you want to help him because he seemed so tired, but you didn't really know what you could do? Well, I was, um, I was very curious about farming. And my husband, bless his heart, I think he really was hoping that I would be very involved in farming. So just to speak of, of how excited he was, he bought, uh, we bought a used John Deere, this big old tractor. We were so excited about it. And when we went to pick it up, he wanted me to drive it home. Oh. <laughs> I know. So he's like, no, I want you to drive it home. You know, this is, you know, I want you to learn how to drive it. And, and people who saw us in the community, like, they couldn't believe it. They're like, whoa, I saw you driving your tractor down the road. This, this beast of a tractor that, you know, in my mind cost all this money because I just had no idea, again, that um, farming was such a costly enterprise. Um, but that he would trust me in this this tractor. So yes, in the in the beginning, I I did uh, get on the tractor and I did some disking and uh, that sort of thing. But you know what? This is really sad and embarrassing to say, but I feel like I came on the farm later in life. I'd already been in school for ten years, you know, racking my brain to get this PhD, and I felt kind of like I was an old dog trying to learn new tricks. So here would be an example of what I did. We have uh, a farm that's right down the road from this. And so he asked me, he said, could you go down to the other farm and, and bring the tractor? So I did. I go down to the other farm, I get on the tractor, and I bring it down, and I get it over to the barn, and he looks at it, and I had never taken off the parking brake. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. <laughs> now, that's pretty significant. And so, you know, it's like, okay, after a couple of times like that, I, I saw that my husband was like, this is not worth it. <laughs> it's not worth it. And so it became a joke. It wasn't a funny joke, but I used to say, my job on the farm is to break things, and his job is to fix things. So it became clear that, uh, you know, I do the paperwork, and I take care of the household management and, and running the farm from that aspect. But when it comes to being on the equipment, and, you know, the other thing was is we – uh, wanted to have a family, and we had a daughter, um, just one child. And I know he had always wanted a son, but he thought, well, I have a daughter, and she seemed interested in farming. And, and so she was helping out with some things, and, of course, she was much quicker at picking up on things than I was. But I remember one day there was something that happened, and it could have gone bad. And farming accidents can happen, as you know, so fast, and they can't be reversed, right? Mm -hmm. And I know in his mind it was like, okay, um, that's enough. Um, you know, she was also interested in dance and a lot of other things. And so he just made sure that she stayed safe 
and the equipment stayed safe from me <laughs> and, and did most of the farming himself, which has been a tremendous stress, a tremendous strain, I have to say, yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, with that, have you, like throughout the years, noticed signs of stress during cult times of the year or anxiety? And being a psychologist, did you find that you picked up on those signs more often and you wanted to help him more in that way? Well, I think so in the beginning. I, I did very much. I mean, I could easily see the signs. You know, I would notice that the stress levels would go, they could go from zero to 100 so quickly within the course of a month, right, as, as a farming season came on or as the spring time came on and the winds weren't right. Um, things could be going fine and, and then they wouldn't be fine so, so quickly. And I think in the beginning, I did have some suggestions or would make some what I thought were supportive comments, you know, you know, let's relax, let's take it one day at a time, things are going to be okay. But then I realized that I don't, I don't think he always wanted to hear that from me. And I, I quickly realized I wasn't his therapist. If he wanted a therapist, then he would need to ask for that or ask for help, right? Because, I, you know, I think as a wife, then it comes down to, yes, I was a wife that was a psychologist, but even as a wife, the things that we say to our husbands aren't always welcome, right? <laughs> um, I did have a client come in once. She was from a farming family, and her husband also worked off the farm. And she used a term that I really liked. She said, my husband is so testy during farming season. And I thought, that's such a good word because, you know, it's not like they're awful mm-hmm. or they're terrible or they're abusive, but they're so on edge. And testy was just such a good word, you know, um, that they, they're short in the things, in the way that they speak to us or in saying what it is they need. I found it was, it was hard for me not to take things personally and to take a step back and to, to kind of look at the situation. A, a very simple thing that I had used for many, many years in my um, treatment of people was using the acronym HALT. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but H-A-L-T. And so each letter stands for something. So H stands for hungry, and A for angry, L for lonely, and T for tired. And so one of the things that we always train people is when we're living with someone, uh, like with children or a husband, I don't like to say them both in the same sentence because sometimes it does seem like our husbands are children, But, you know, we can use the HALT acronym and ask ourselves, gee, are they hungry, are they angry, lonely, or tired? But I quickly saw that during farming season, he was always all four. And then I learned that people add an S to the end, which is stressed. So now it's HALTS, right? Mm -hmm. And that he was always hungry, he's working around the clock, always angry, the weather wasn't right, something was breaking down, the sun wasn't right, they weren't, the things weren't coming through the ground, there was too much rain, there was water on the field. He was lonely, he was working around the clock, all by himself in the tractor, all by himself taking the loads in, and he was exhausted. Mm-hmm. And so add to that the stress of trying to get things marketed, watching the markets while you're trying to get things in the ground. It was just so much, right? But I did find uh, that HALT helped me. And I can say that one of the things that I have done most over the years is made sure that there's food 
<laughs> you know, yeah. and I know sometimes he'd be tested, testy about that. I'm not hungry. <laughs> but I just wanted to make sure that I could take anything off of that halt that I could. I could make sure that there was food. I couldn't necessarily help him not be angry. I could help sometimes with the loneliness by riding with him. So I would ride in the combine, um, especially in the combine and sometimes in the tractor. And if he was tired, I could sometimes help with that. You know, I'd um, scratch his back or, or try to help with re- helping him relax. But there's so much that was out of his control and even more so that was out of my control as his spouse, right? That's a good acronym for, you know, wives or just other family members or friends to keep in mind. You mentioned you had um, that wife of a farmer come in that was a client. Do you have many clients who are farmers being in being in the Leamington area there's lots of agriculture around there yes there is lots of agriculture and I would just say that over the years I've had very very few farmers are farming I've had more farmers family members come in than farmers so it's more likely for me to see the wife of a farmer who is struggling with his testiness or, <laughs> right. uh, you know, the, the loneliness or the alienation that she's feeling in the home. Um, for the farmers to come in themselves, I just think it's really difficult. And I I've followed the research that came out of the University of Guelph and was very interested in it. Uh, my own experience with my husband and the farmers that I know, they're very, very private people. They're not ones to talk about emotions. Um, there's no room for emotion, really, right? Mm-hmm. It just You've got to do what you have to do when you have to do it. Uh, I think that, and I was asking my husband yesterday in preparation for this, I said, you know, what, what shall I say? What? Why don't farmers get help? And he said, well, he felt that they didn't want to be perceived as weak. And I think that, you know, that across the board for men getting help, psychological help, has always been a barrier because men think that they're supposed to be strong all the time and that they're not supposed to be emotional. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to buck up and suck it up, and they're supposed to be the strong one in the family. So for them to be not feeling strong wouldn't it be something that they would want to advertise, I don't think. And many of them don't even want to admit it to themselves or to their loved ones. So what they do instead, I think, is try to self-medicate. Certainly one of the things that I've seen in the farming community is a lot of alcohol. You know, this calls for a beer or two or three or five. And... um, I, you know, I understand that, and I, you know, a hot day and, and a nice cold beer, but I did notice that after intense periods of farming, when the farmers could start to get together again, that they would maybe be having more than they needed, mm-hmm. um, and you know, that's that's okay once in a while, but there is a fine line that we know about alcohol use and abuse. And especially if people are using alcohol to manage their emotions, they can get in trouble with it. So, you know, the first drink or two might make us feel a little giddy, make us feel, whoa, what a relief, you know, that's over with. But what we know about blood levels is it's all downhill from there, and then alcohol becomes a depressant. Mm -hmm. So that maybe what they thought was going to be making them feel better to start with really is making them feel worse. Because... uh, 
farmers are very private. I don't know about farmers doing drugs or internet addiction or gaming addictions, but I just know from my practice that those things are out there, and these are things that men use to, uh, you know, women would tend to use things more like shopping, but men are, are also trying to find ways to make themselves feel better, and they're often things that are taking them away from their connections with their families, or like in this case of alcohol, interfering with their relationships with their families. Right. So you mentioned after like the planting's done or harvesting's done and they get together and have drinks, although they may have a few too many, do you think that that's still, it's a way for them to get together with people who have gone through the same sorts of things? And do you think that that's almost therapeutic for them to just get together with other farmers who understand what they just went through? Oh, absolutely. I do. I, I, I clearly think that that is important. And I think that any opportunities um, to get together with other farmers and farm families. I know for a while we were involved in the uh, Christian, we, we still are involved with the Christian Farmers Federation, and we would have barbecues in our area, and those were wonderful opportunities to be together with other families. Um, and I'm, you know, I don't want you to get me wrong here. There's nothing wrong with um, having a few beers, nothing wrong with that at all. But what I'm talking about is more of a pattern of um, of heavier drinking that's not necessarily going on with uh, socializing with others. It might be going on in the home, might be going on during the winter, might be going on in the barn, you know, when nobody uh, in the house knows what's going on. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And that that's where um, coping mechanisms, any kind of coping mechanism that is numbing can be uh, a bad thing. Right. That makes sense. So you mentioned you don't have a lot of farmer clients, but even the family members that come in, have you seen an increase in that as clients in the last few years as mental health and agriculture has been um, discussed more? I have not. I feel that it's still too early. I think that we're just starting to see articles in the farm magazine offered uh, in seminars. I think it's going to take a while for, for the stigma to wear off. So farmers are going to have to hear that for for a while and see that for a while before they have a go-to mindset of getting help. Uh, Another thing my husband and I were talking about, he said he felt like a lot of it with farmers could be priorities. Um, You know, particularly this year, I was just reading an article the other day, and one farmer was saying, this year it's all about just trying to um, make ends meet, right? Just trying to break even. So if, if a farmer is just breaking even, there isn't extra money for therapy. And a, a farmer is not likely to prioritize therapy. They're more likely to say, I've got to get some work done on my tractor or I need a new combine. Uh, Those would be priorities that I think in a farmer's mind will be far more uh, salient or important than going to get therapy. And particularly, you know, I said they don't like to be perceived as weak, but I think that they perceive themselves as weak. Okay, so it's easy to say, I don't want other people to see me as weak, but I think what they really mean is, I don't want to be weak, and I think I would be weak if I needed help. Right. So they just keep trying to push through. Yes. So again, I think it's going to take some time. I think we just need to keep having articles in the papers and we need to keep kind of having it out there in their face. Farming is stressful. 
Um, farming can lead to high levels of anxiety. It can lead to self-harm. Uh, I just talked about, you know, overuse of alcohol or any uh, drugs can be self-harming. And left um, unchecked, mental health issues can turn to really negative, hopeless kinds of thinking that can lead to suicide. And farmers have means of taking their life, and that is very dangerous, right? Um, hanging and firearms are two very, very lethal means of suicide. You know, a lot of people don't want to talk this bluntly about suicide, but I always say there are no taboo topics. We need to talk about them. If uh, a family member is concerned that their loved one might be suicidal, it's really important to have uh, a discussion about, hey, you know what, uh, I don't like having the guns around the house right now, and could we see if we could take them over to your brother's house for a while. Those are important conversations to have, and sometimes loved ones need to be the ones to broach the topic, to say, hey, I've been watching you and I'm afraid. I'd like to go with you to talk with your doctor. That's very true. Family members can get really worried, but they have to remember that they can still try to do some things as hard as it may be, but yeah, little things like that can make a big difference. So if you do have uh, farmers come in for counseling, what kind of process would you go through in counseling them or how would it differ from an everyday client? Well, that's what's interesting because it's really not that different from an everyday client because by the time people come in to see me, they are usually diagnosable with anxiety or depression or both and they are going to need some techniques for alleviating those symptoms and for managing their stress, so um, helping them find ways to bring their anxiety levels down, helping them find things to do that will make them feel less depressed, and helping them with everyday uh, stress management skills. I always say to my clients that our lifestyles have to be sustainable. And one thing about the farming seasons themselves are it's not a sustainable pace. So a farmer can do that for two months or so, but they couldn't do that 12 months of the year, that pace where they'd be on the tractor for maybe 36 hours or, you know, the intense pressures of taking grain to the granaries and then back in the tractor or back in the combine. You can't do, you cannot sustain that day in and day out. And the same thing is true when I meet with people from other professions, whether they be first responders or CEOs. Life has to have a pace to it, a realistic pace to it. So if we're going to have a period of time where there is an excessive amount of energy out, we have to match that with an equal amount of time when there's energy in. And one of the things that I uh, always talk to people about is that energy in needs to start with self-care. And because I find that farmers live so closely to the land and are so in tune with um, the cycles of the earth and if I could say Mother Earth herself, I just find many of them have a, a spirituality that I really like for them to cultivate. So they're struggling against the elements to get a crop in the field. And yet most of them, uh, and certainly when we do surveys and we look at farmers and we ask them, the overwhelming number of farmers believe in God. So I try to reconnect them, or if they've never been connected with their spiritual side, 
I think it's very important for them to develop their spiritual side. I remember one farmer said to me, yeah, you know, church isn't for me. I pray in my tractor. And I can remember thinking after I'd been here for a while, well, that's good, but you're really only in your tractor a couple times during the year, and that's in the spring and the fall. I mean, they're in time. They're in their tractor a lot during those times, but where are they praying the rest of the time? And so that is what I really try to uh, cultivate with all of my clients. And I think that's something that sets me apart from other psychologists is that I'm very much Christian-based. I really believe that we all need to have something bigger than ourselves that we can rely on and and trust in. Um, So I just really feel like that's a very important part of our self-care. So, for instance, what I I wrote down just a couple of things that I might say uh, to a farming family or any family, um, that it's important to talk about um, the stresses of life with others. I think it's really important, though, to choose who we talk to. And one of the terms that I always use in my practice is safe people. We need to find people in our lives who for us are safe. A safe person will always build us up and encourage us. Unsafe people will criticize us. They will tear us down. They'll talk about us behind our back. So farmers, we need safe people in our lives. We don't, farmers farm in a fishbowl environment. You know, I'm driving down the street and I can see how John Doe's farming is going. I can observe him broken down in the field. So can everyone else. And that is really hard uh, for people to live in a fishbowl like that. Um, It's really important for them to have some safe place where they can talk about that breakdown and not feel like, you know, other people were condemning them or criticizing them for being on the field when it was too wet or, you know, all of those things. So very important, again, to have a safe community of people with whom we can talk. Number two, be aware of our thinking. Um, We have to be aware of what we're telling ourselves because I'll I'll hear coming out of somebody's mouth, boy, I'm never going to get this crop in. Well, we did see this year that that did happen, that we had more unplanted acreage, kind of a record, I think it was, for crop insurance. But in a normal year, we have to realize that things might be difficult but the chances are we are going to get them in, right? So I tell people avoid catastrophic talk and ask ourselves, what is the worst that could happen here? And this is more important, how likely is that? So we have a joke in our family. Some family members are like, oh, my gosh, it's so bad. We're going to lose the farm. You know, we will kind of laugh about it because how likely is it that they're going to lose the farm? But there are years where we worry about that more than others, right? This year would be one of those years. But truly, we have to ask ourselves when we're having catastrophic kinds of thinking, what is the worst that could happen here and how likely is it? Well, maybe the worst that could happen here is my crop goes in later than I hoped. And this year, all the crops went in later than we hoped, and we still had a great yield. And so I think that that's really important to remember. It's also something that I think we need to be grateful for and remember in our our Thanksgiving that it isn't all about us. It is about God. It's about forces bigger than ourselves. And even though a crop goes in late, it still may be a good one. I already talked about, I always talk about avoid numbing ourselves with substances or behaviors um, that are possibly going to be working against us. It's much better to feel what we're feeling and talk with someone about that than to cover over our feelings with something that is not going to be lasting 
right? If I'm medicating, self-medicating with drugs, sooner or later I'm going to get sober. I'm going to get, I'm not going to be high anymore, and I'm going to need another hit, or I'm going to need more alcohol, or whatever that is. Better to feel the pain and talk about it. Uh, another important thing, whether you're a farmer or whoever you are, uh, is regular exercise. Uh, find something that you like to do. Get a buddy that will do it with you, and try to do that on somewhat of a regular schedule. Uh, recreation is really important, and the off-season, have things that you do. Get away. Spend time with your family doing things that you enjoy. Have hobbies that you enjoy in the off-season. Those things will take your mind off of stress. Uh, and the other thing, um, and this is particularly important when we start to feel stressed out, to practice just simple deep breathing and relaxation techniques. Panic attacks, uh, one of the things I've seen over the years, just since I've been in practice in 30 years, more people are having panic attacks than ever, ever before. And we can avoid a panic attack simply by when we notice that our heart rate is going up or we're getting a little bit worked up, we can exit that situation. I often tell people, go to the washroom and just start some deep breathing. Breathe in slowly through your nose and out through the mouth. And just if you can do that for three or four minutes, you'll notice that your heart rate comes down. You'll notice that your breathing, you've slowed the breathing, and the breathing you've slowed has slowed your heart rate, and now your mind is not going to catastrophic places. It's clear, right? And so those are just really important, simple techniques that we can do to, um, to safeguard ourselves from stress. Lots of good tips in there that I hope our listeners start to use. Yes, I hope so too. We've talked a bit about more of the resistance for farmers to come in and ask for help. Do you see this resistance changing as it's talked about more? Hopefully, yes. Um, the other thing that I think is important is um, to talk a little bit about funding for therapy because farmers, if they are exclusively farming and if they don't have other on-farm help, they may not have any kind of insurance. And um, I have to admit, you know, psychotherapy is expensive. The thing that I do like to say to people, and this has been true no matter what uh, area of work people are in, I found in my work that people generally feel significantly better in three to five sessions. That's not very many. And so I think sometimes when people think, oh, I need to go into therapy, they're feeling like they are so messed up, they're going to need to be in therapy for years. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it doesn't work that way. I mean, I've just given five or six tips that we just teach people, and they go home and practice them, and they'll come back a week or two later, and they're like, wow, I feel so much better already. So I think it's important to let them know, yes, it's okay to ask for help, um, that getting help isn't going to mean years and years in therapy. It's going to mean maybe three to five sessions. And even if they have to pay out of pocket for that, it's a very good investment in themselves, in their families, and in their business, in their, in their farming practice, right? Yep, that is very true. So do you have any recommendations for farm organizations or others in the farming community to promote the importance of mental health or encourage farmers to get the help that they need? Well, I think that, again, it's just really important. Uh, we had that great research that came out of the University of Guelph and, you know, kind of made the headlines there in the farm papers and the other papers. But I don't want that to be relegated to a back column now. I think it needs to stay in the forefront. 
We need to remind farmers about ongoing positive things they do for mental health. And I think at our farming events, we need to keep including a portion of that where you might have a speaker come in and talk bluntly. I've talked very bluntly today, particularly about suicide. People think these thoughts. Don't think that they're not thinking them. They are thinking them. And I find when I do a presentation, the room goes quiet. It's absolutely silent because there isn't someone who hasn't had these thoughts. Well, I've got a gun or I've got a rope and I've got a barn. People would be better off without me. And when irritability and anxiety and anger get beyond the testy mark to where they feel like they're pushing their family members away, they are likely to think, gee, you know, they're probably better off without me. Those are really dangerous thoughts, and we need to normalize them in a sense. We need to say, hey, you know what, you're not the only one who thinks these thoughts. We all think them at times, and they, but, but we don't act on them. Right. Instead, we use them as a marker. That's what I tell people. This, this is a marker. It's an indicator that you need to talk to somebody, that you need some help. A great place to start is the family doctor. That's going to be covered by OHIP. So the other thing I just wanted to mention is that one of the things we started in my practice, I have a social worker who works with me, and she has started equine-assisted psychotherapy, uh, where we partner with a local therapeutic riding center, and individuals come for group or individual therapy or working with the horses. And that's been wonderful. I, we are using that for first responders. I mean, talk about another group who thinks that they're invincible and they should never be weak, police, fire, EMS, right? Uh, but we get these individuals with horses, and we've just, we're seeing wonderful results. And so I would just say that would be an opportunity for farmers to do something different. All psychotherapy um, isn't about sitting in an office uh, across from somebody that you think is intimidating and talk about your problems. We can um, access better self-care and become more aware of our own feelings by doing something like equine-assisted therapy, which it's fun in addition to being very effective. Mm -hmm. That's a really good idea. And, you know, they would still be on a farm or with animals, which a lot of farmers do find therapeutic or really enjoy. So that's a really good idea. Absolutely. Yes. This has been a really great conversation. We've covered a lot of interesting topics and you've given a lot of great tips and advice that I hope our listeners will use. Um, So if any of our listeners would like to reach out to you for more information or to book a confidential appointment, how can they contact you? Well, either by phone or by email would be best. My office number is 519-326-7100. Again, 519-326-7100. And my email is russell, E-S, at hotmail.ca. And so that's russell, R-U-S-S-E-L-L-E-S, at hotmail.ca. Just don't forget the CA. If you send it to .com, I won't get it. (laughs) All right. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining me today. Well, I just really appreciate it. I think it's so important for us to be talking about these things. So thank you for making it important. So joining me, I have our chair of Grain Farmers of Ontario, Marcus Hurl. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me today, Marcus. Oh, no problem. We'll take time out of our busy day to do a quick podcast. That's not a problem. That's great. So I know you are very busy. So how is harvest going right now? 
it's a very slow progress uh, with many different challenges thrown at us this year. First with uh, the weather being so unsure what's coming tomorrow with the snowfall that we had across the province. Now, uh, since about, what, the week and a half, two weeks ago. On top of it, now we're in a strike situation from CN Rail, where uh, propane is going to be a very difficult commodity to, to get to. So uh, it's piling on. How does that really affect farmers, um, both mentally and just on their business? Well, uh, it's putting a lot of stress on farmers. Um, when I uh, get phone calls from farmers of how they uh, don't know how to manage from here on in, uh, the, the weather is one thing, okay? We, uh, we know that uh, at this time of the year, there is some expectations that snowfalls can happen, uh, rain, cold, and all that. Market conditions are very difficult this year. Now, with this whole uh, strike, with CN Rail, we don't really know what the timelines are when this is all going to be resolved. And uh, now that uh, some propane suppliers are cutting supply to mainly corn dryers, and we know that there is still 70 to 80 percent of all the corn crop in Ontario still out in the field, is creating actually a major bottleneck for farmers. Um, even though some large elevators or even farm dryers are on natural gas. The ones that do are on natural gas feel a pinch alike because they're getting a larger volume of uh, corn being shipped to those elevators. So uh, there's actually loads being refused coming in, uh, lower allocations per day for the, uh, the transportation sector. So this is actually going to stretch out harvest time significantly. And on top of it, we don't even know when this whole uh, strike will be over. It's only in its second day. And uh, talking to some of the CNRAIL officials, they're saying if we look at every day of the strike, if you convert that to the time of it's going to need to get the whole uh, supply chain rolling again, you multiply the days for, for strike times three, and that's the time length that it's going to need by the time you're going to be full swing again. And that's quite concerning because we might be in to this strike for a week. That means two to three weeks before propane is actually going to get back to its full extent. And on top of it, the colder climates are coming. Residential are going to need more propane. Uh, it's going to be a disaster in progress, I think. Time will tell and... Uh, there's nothing I can say at this point that it's going to actually going to be very positive outlook. Yeah, that's that's really too bad. It's you know, this year just keeps throwing more and more things at farmers. Um, it's been very tough to deal with. So not only with the CN rail strike, but then also can you talk a little bit about the cost the carbon tax is having on farmers this year when they have to dry so much of their grain? Yeah, well, uh, since the, uh, the carbon tax was implemented last year, we knew that the uh, propane and natural gas is going to be one of those commodities that's also going to receive a carbon tax slapped on. Now, this is going to be a tax that we as corn and soybean producers or any commodity producer cannot offset into the marketplace. And uh, this is a direct cost now downloaded to the farmer. We uh, are still working and asking government to exempt 
propane and natural gas as, as we speak and making this even retroactive because there is no way that farmers can assume more and more costs to growing their commodity because we have certainly no way of recuperating any of those costs. They've done it for other industries. If you look at the greenhouse industry, they're exempt, but no crop farming is. Uh, so we're just asking for equal treatment for all commodities that are grown in, in the fields. And uh, I think it's just treating everybody fair. Yep, that makes sense. Is there anything else you would like to add, Marcus? Yeah, and uh, I just want to add, if there's any farmers out there that uh, with all this harvest stress, that they feel the need to reach out to some experts uh, to help them cope with the, the challenges that they're facing, uh, do not be afraid. And often enough, there is somebody out there that's able to help you out in the time of need. And uh, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Reach out to somebody that you can get the answers that you require. I know it's very difficult. We're into a long stretch here still to come. And the, uh, the stress level is just going to increase from here on in. All right. Well, thank you so much, Marcus, for taking a few minutes to talk to me today. I know you're very busy, so good luck with the rest of your harvest. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Grain Talk podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more ways to connect with us, including the latest webinar, market report, and our e-newsletter, go to gfo.ca slash grain talk. A special thank you to our guests this week, Dr. Elizabeth Skidmore and Marcus Hurl. If you like what you've heard today, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And remember, five-star reviews help us grow our audience.